Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Fuse, a bomb podcast. 40 years ago, Bomb began as a conversation between artists around a kitchen table in downtown New York. Today, Fuse brings you into the room to listen in on candid, unfiltered conversations about creative practice. Here's how it works. Bomb invites a distinguished artist to choose a guest from any creative discipline, an art crush, a close collaborator, or even a stranger they've admired from afar. And we bring them together. No host, no moderator, no interruptions, just two artists in conversation. For this episode, we asked movement-based interdisciplinary artist Eiko Otake who she'd most like to speak with. She selected the artistic director, founder, and violinist of the Kronos Quartet, David Harrington. So I wanted to talk to David because David is not someone I see often. So when we see each other, when we talk to each other, I feel like we talk something that is important. We don't talk about wine. We don't talk about which restaurant. And those are the conversations I just dislike. We never do that. So let's just focus to what's important to us. For over 45 years, San Francisco's Grammy-winning Kronos Quartet and its nonprofit Kronos Performing Arts Association have reimagined and redefined the string quartet experience through thousands of concerts, over 60 recordings, collaborations with composers and performers from around the globe, more than a thousand commissioned works, and education programs for emerging musicians. Born and raised in Japan and a resident of New York since 1976, Eiko Otake is an artist, choreographer, and performer who worked for more than 40 years as Eiko in Coma. Since 2014, she has been performing her solo project, A Body in Places, she has been honored by the Guggenheim Fellowship and the first Doris Duke Artist Awards. Aiko and David discuss performance as a transcendent medium and their collaboration entitled The Duet Project, Distance is Malleable. This might be useful to other people to find out how you do your work and I do my work. Yes. And why don't we just let people in on this process? Yes. Good. To me, that's the most interesting thing we can provide for other people right now is yes. what we do and how we do it. Sometimes I hear people go like, oh, Eko, don't you sometimes make a happy piece? Everything that you make is so depressing. And I'd say, that's not my job. 
I don't really have a sense of I need to make a variation of the different emotions, you know, because if I'm dealing with Fukushima, I see no reason why there has to be a humor in there, right? And I'm dealing with the death and mm-hmm. dealing with our friends and, you know, the AIDS crisis and what's not, and I just read about Boeing, you know. And so there are many things that I can get very angry, and sometimes I'm actively angry, sometimes depressingly angry, and I can be very um, uh, remorseful, right? And being remorseful is important to me. Right. Because without regret, we don't really have the real sense of authentic action, right? So when you're dealing with often younger people than yourself, and you have a very important place in the music world, don't you sometimes get afraid? You might be saying something that might change. It might be good for the quality of what you think, but what is authentic feeling about that particular composer. I trust you, so I'm not saying what you said is not good, but how do you guide yourself in giving the advices? Well, the first thing I listen to when I'm meeting with somebody or talking to anybody is the tone of their voice. Oh my God, I better be careful. And how how the voice is used. Because the voice is it's kind of each one of us has our public musical instrument that we play. And that is our voice and the way we shape words, the timing we use, the accents, the things that we stress, the things that we don't talk about. That tells us a lot about each other, actually. And when I'm meeting with a new composer, someone that's new for me, I tend to listen very, very carefully, especially when they talk about things that we can't see. I just came from a meeting with one of my very favorite composers, and her name is Alexandra Vrabeloff. And I've known Alexandra since she was a student at the San Francisco Conservatory in um, 1995, which is about when we started working together. Yeah. I remember we, we uh, were in Japan together about then. That's the same year that I met Ale- Alexandra. And she's written, uh, I think, uh, 10 or 11 pieces for us over the years. And oh. we were just now talking about an opera that she's going to be writing. And we were talking also about an idea that I have. And, and you're talking about, uh, you mentioned sadness. Yes. Well, one of the things that's happened to me recently is that I've begun to study uh, Schubert's song cycle, which is uh, Winterreise, uh, Winter's Journey. And it's it's a cycle of 24 songs that he wrote in the last, I think, two years of his life. And as you might know, he died when he was 31. And his his death is one of the great tragedies of European music. I think, because he was one of these young people that was just getting greater and greater and greater. And and one of his very last pieces was the C major cello quintet. If you've never heard the C major cello quintet, Echo, I hope you will listen to it. Tonight, I promise. Turn off all the lights and just let this piece enter your being. For me, it's just one of the great accomplishments of humanity that piece and it was never played during Schubert's lifetime it ended up in a uh, somebody's cabinet in Vienna and it was discovered about 25 years after his death that's crazy and fortunately there was not a fire there was not, it's totally insane 
but we have this piece now that and people can play it and it's what an incredible thing it is and um, I have no idea if you would even like it I don't know if you would like it I have a feeling that you would intuit a whole lot about things I think this is very rare where I, I actually feel I have to listen to this and I will listen to this tonight and I think it has been like this with you it's like every time I listen to the music which is not very often it's just not the way I live my life however you open up part of my unused muscle, you know, in a way, that I just, I, I do open up. Now, by talking to you after many long time, I just remember the excitement I always have when I hear your music. And even when you are wrong, and also at the time when I listened to the entire concert. So I, I think I shouldn't really be saying, oh, I don't care the music. It's just like, it's, you know, because I, have a certain, I belong to a certain field and a certain way I work. I have determined most of the time I don't use music in my work because too many people associate dance and movement work to music. So this is my way of deciding you know, I left theater, now I perform more or less in public space because too many dance are associated with stage. So I've been trying to, you know, as you said, I don't know how many more years I have in my life that physically I can perform. And, you know, I became a solo performer. And then I'm kind of saddened and angered. You see those young people dancing on the street or in the campus, always with music. And almost always not with great music, <laughs> you know. So my, not a battle, but my way of defining and something that I want to bring to the world, people, is like, you know, you can dance without music. You can dance without, uh, you know, the, the music blasting to your ears. So I, I teach entire semester sometimes without ever, not even once, connecting any music. So this is somehow... Because of the way that I'm placing myself within my field, I have restricted my time because I'm not, I feel very badly and I want to ask you, how do you curate your sense of time throughout the years, throughout a month, a week, and a day where you rehearse, where you are committed to travel and perform, and you just said you're just studying a new music? How do you curate so that you don't leave out something that is important to you? That's such a great uh, question. <laughs> well, for me, I think of music as a huge set of variations. I think of it as something that, I mean, when I was about 14, I decided I was going to be a musician. Yes. And at this point in time, I realized that really the only thing that means is that because I decided at age 14 I was going to be a musician, it just means that I get to have music around me more than most other people. That's right. I, I don't know anything more about it than anyone else. I, I find it totally mysterious. I don't know how it works. I don't get it. So at age 14, you know, I started playing string quartets at age 12. And by the time I started Kronos, 
1973, it was clear that my actual instrument was two violins, a viola, and a cello. And I've never really thought of myself as a violinist, you know, since I started Kronos. My sound is all four instruments. And then when we play a quintet, it's with another instrument. And when we play with several singers or whatever, my instrument is still the quartet. And as I was growing up, some of the most inward sounds that I remember hearing were moments in string quartet music. And I've added to that collection over the years. And now I have a large collection of sounds, but it's getting bigger all the time. You know, Mm. and some of them I I use in various ways. Some of them create questions or they can be put to use in, in a variety of ways. It's a dialogue. It's it's a conversation that goes on inside. And then frequently, I, I you know, I might meet a composer somewhere or another instrumentalist that has his or her own collection of sounds and we can share, we can trade. Mm. I, I'm a collector of musical experiences, but even more than that, I'm a collector of individual moments in music, like these nerve centers of human experience that get somehow channeled through the world of music. Mm. And every once in a while, you find something that's so incredibly wonderful that you just want to add it to your collection or you want to share it with your friends or, or I've forgotten what your question was, Aiko, but I, okay. I'm trying to answer whatever I no, think. No, no, you, you had to be answering. Yeah, this, that, that very enthusiastic <laughs> and one of the many things I love about you is you're very articulate in saying. There was not a words I feel you had wasted in what you just said, right? And I kind of, I, I totally get it. And I feel like what you said, oh, it's not like you literally meditated and chose music because you were 14. And the sometimes difference is I never wanted to be a dancer. And in fact, it almost was a joke and almost like irony. I ended up becoming something that's the least that I'm good at. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe at this point, it's a different. I've always wanted to be a writer, and, and I did not know what to write about. So I kind of wanted to tell myself, if you can't have very important things to write about, before training yourself as a writer, because how do you train yourself if you don't have important things to say? Then I should have an, a very important experience first. And the way that I thought about that is how do I live with a very anti-capitalistic life? Because, you know, I was post-war baby, meaning uh, the people whose work I read or poems or music, and those are the people who had experienced war. So they had much more life and death experience, whereas I kind of came to after Japan, when Japan was an upwards economy. So I never feared that I cannot survive. I could always work. And I remember the time you said you were working in a flower shop. But even in a flower shop you were working, remember? Yes. You still knew you were going to be a musician. You were a musician. So you didn't really have this existential traumatic (laughs) problem I have had as you went through the late 60s, (laughs) right? There was always a very strong mission in in yourself, which I think you are very lucky. And sometimes my son said, Mom, you always say, you know, find a job or find a work that is important that you love. And he said, Mom, you have to realize many people don't have that. You know, it's not everyone actually find a work that you feel 
completely comfortable to say, this is what I love. And don't you feel sometimes you are actually, your listeners may not have the concentration and passion and, and the kind of life you have had. You create a great music and you create, you hear these amazing things that you talk about. Do you sometimes feel like, sometimes I see that in the dance world, how many more amazing dance do we need in the world? We already have these great pieces. Of course, we humans, so we keep creating. Sometimes I feel even hesitation because sometimes I, I, get, I get very excited working. Then I, am I just providing another comfort for the visitor or for the audience? Am I just providing an escape? And there's nothing wrong to provide escape. People need escape. But my life, my life putting too much of, of the proportion of my life is to create what we call art, and by doing so, am I putting my face away from the things that is so deafening, that is so blinding, that is putting our existence to the way that I feel like if you say optimistic, I most like look at the people's face. You know, like I'm in North Carolina, I'm performing, and somebody who I know many years said, Eiko, how are you? And I can't quite say, fine, and then kind of leave it at it. And if I say, I'm well, then started to have this whole bigger conversation, which takes time. Because now all of a sudden you're take, talking to someone, well, I'm not really good because what happened yesterday and because of what happened the day before yesterday, what happened the day, you know, like we have this mounting things that's happening all over the world that we get to learn about. How do you protect yourself from that? What do you have to protect yourself? Well, I'm not sure there is a protection. Now, for for example, it's interesting that, I mean, one of the most dangerous and potentially catastrophic issues facing all of us is the effects of climate change. Absolutely, yes. And the people that are going to be most affected by this are the young people. And it's people my age that need to learn from the people that are my grandkids' age about this issue. And so, for example, before our last tour, my grandson gave me, he's 10, he gave me a book, lent me a book about the effects of what we eat on the environment. Mm -hmm. And after reading that book, I've made an executive decision for myself that I'm not going to be having beef anymore. I'm not I'm just not having it again because it takes so much more water and so much more resources so much than any other form of protein right animal protein so I learned this from a book that my grandson gave me That's beautiful My granddaughter wants to be a clothing designer huh. and she went to a program this summer and she learned about kind of renewable fabric and, you know, ma making fabrics out of mushroom skins. And it was a, the most interesting conversation I got to have with her. And then, of course, then there's the incredible young woman that came to the United Nations and spoke. Oh, yeah. Yes. I don't know. I'm, I'm finding some real leadership from the youngest people. I agree. In our society who are going to be the most affected. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, when I'm thinking about, okay, how does music fit into this? Yes. For me, the way music works is incredibly personally. It's like there's no one way it works for any of us. For me, when I listen to a piece of music or a song or anything, my mind goes in and out of focus. And for me, that's 
part of the experience. And for me to demand that someone pay total attention to my music right now, it doesn't work that way. It just simply doesn't. It's it's like you never know when you're going to run into a, a note or an instrumental sound or a voice that can change your entire perspective. And you just have to be ready and available, you know, and I think that's the way it works. Well, that's the way it works for me. I was just going to chime in to say you just use the words available. And this is something I think a lot about last seven, eight years is like being a performer. I want to put myself to be available. So therefore, it's one of the reasons why I also perform in the public places. But I also work with the words available as more like in the even movement work. I can, my body can be available to other dreams or to other beauties. It's not a beauty I want to create. becomes a texture. I want to do what I want to do now, not five years from now. So in that sense, I'm a, you know, people, I don't know if you noticed, people now comment, hey, you're moving faster. And I joke back and said, I don't have much time left. Do you think about a lot about dying and about dead people? But, you know, I mean, of course, you, you, you and I have always had a conversation about this. Mm-hmm. I, I go ahead to tell you this. I now think as a performer, you and I, very long time we both are performing. So many people who had listened to you, so many people who had seen my body died. So sometimes I think like, oh, my body is not only for my live audience. I, I carry my body and with it some gaze of the people who died, who, who watched me and who supported me by watching. So I'm, I have a more complex relationship to the performance because it's not like me is doing something for the viewer only. I'm also carrying other people with me. It's just a kind of thinking that I've been doing. Because of your long history in the performance, if you have a sense of not only to this beautiful music to yourself or to your kids or to your future generation, what was that in relationship to the people who are gone? I know you and I talked about a lot about a very important person for you, but also at the same time I'm talking about so many other people that your life or your music came across. Do you think those things? Or? Well, yes, I do. <laughs> and I think we've talked about this before. Like, Where does a sound go once you've finished making that sound? You know. Yes, yes. Where, where is it? Yes. And it's the same if someone watches your work, yes. watches your body, what your dance, what happens to that? I think about this all the time. So do I. Absolutely. I, every day I think about this. Yes. 
I don't have an answer for it, except that it seems to me that the what we can do is is create opportunities, experiences, mm-hmm. challenges, resonance. We can create dissonance. We can create ugliness. For me, the, the, the entire vocabulary of possibilities that I can imagine are needed sometimes. I, I never know what tool I'm going to need next. Sometimes I have to learn new tools. But in, in thinking about, for example, people that have died and the music that they take with them and the musical voice, their inner musical world that is gone forever... It reminds me a little bit of, you know, what happened to the the California redwoods that were just sawed down. And some of these trees were 3,000 years old. I was just there. Yeah. That those trees witnessed and maybe Native Americans celebrated those trees. Maybe there was all kinds of ceremonies. And then you think, for example, my my father is going to be 97 pretty soon. And every time I see him, I I just think about all the music that he's heard, all the sounds he heard. You know, he fought in World War II in Europe and as a very young man. You know, when he's gone, where does that sound, that inner sound go? And I think it becomes part of the humus of our soil and our it becomes part of the earth and that gives me optimism actually mm-hmm. <laughs> the more wonderful experience we can bring into ourselves the better humus we're going to make later on <laughs> wow this is a great theory however i may be honest to say have you ever had a sense of resistance or hesitation which i do is it is like is it like how much is enough? You know, is this my our, our joy to receive and create and present earth? Is it sometimes not in a balance? You know, I've been kind of bringing this up. It's not because I'm trying to reconcile myself between the, the political activism and then being an artist. It's more like with a question of what you just said. Take a book. I know many great people who have died, and they read and thought about, they had a conversation. There's a lot of thinking in their head, and I loved them for that. And they died. What? Where does this go? The books are left. But what happened to that? all that thinking? And you're the first person who just gave me the answer. It goes into the soil. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes like such a thing as if the soil has too much nutrition, it doesn't really give a good plant a survival. Too much, too much good things. I mean, that being a little cynical on my end. Well, the thing is we're faced with severe climate change. And so That's right. I, I think that... <laughs> The ocean is going to absorb some of this that I was speaking of. Yes. And wh- what you were speaking of with the um, soil, the radioactive soil. Kushima, yes. You know, it's this is a huge issue. Just this morning, we were at, at our breakfast table. We were reading about a certain kind of bacteria that can chew on uranium and basically regurgitate another kind of substance. Oh, really? I don't know anything about that. The first thing I thought about was you, Eiko. <laughs> yes.
I know you make a program note, you make a program order, you know, and you speak well in a concert and you describe. So you have to decide those things in advance. Have you ever been in a place where you feel like from the time you gave a program note to the time you're playing, you, there's something happened in the world or things happened to you personally, you want to change the world. Can you betray your own preparation or have you done that? Yes. I mean, we, frequently we have changed programs, mm-hmm. sometimes right on the stage at that moment. It depends what we have. I mean, you know, recently there's a composer here in San Francisco that made a piece about the Parkland High School tragedy in, in Florida, and it was made up of the voices of survivors of that massacre. Mm. And it is one of the most disturbing musical pieces that we've ever played Mm. but it belongs in our concerts sometimes Mm. i want everyone every member of chronos to not forget this piece and not forget those voices so there are a lot of things like that and we might do that as an encore sometimes a lot of times you know an audience would think oh an encore would be something cheerful and and inconsequential and recently we played that piece as an encore and you could feel the audience gasp Mm. and yet I felt that was necessary at that point you know so that when audience gasped isn't that the moment it almost becomes things are no longer just not it's not it goes beyond the music in a sense you know it's not I'm not putting the music down but it seems like at that point you are providing an occasion that is just not playing music or listening music it seems like there's something more than just the music happens there Well, the question is, what is music? Exactly. Is music an opportunity for people to share sounds with each other? Yeah. And the sounds of those young voices that exist in that piece, it's not a traditional musical experience, and yet it belongs in a concert of people that are gathered together to share an experience of music. To me, it, bel- it belongs there. It needs to be there. Right. And for that powerful things to happen, which you are so good at it, it's like I always quote the visual I remember, the way you end the concert, the bow, you know, your violin bow just stays, this beautiful lingering sound. But in that, with that power you have, sometimes have you been on occasion where you actually would like to use the light of refusal? Is there certain places you're invited that you just wouldn't go? Or you always think exposing people to your concert is always better than not doing it? I'm talking about you know, if it's an extreme situation where the political upheaval was happening or political oppression was just being exercised. And you, know, you don't have the answer if you don't well, want to. So Kronos was invited to perform different trains by Steve Reich mm-hmm. in Auschwitz. And I may have told you that that I visited Auschwitz several years after my son died. So it would have been about 1997. And the experience of that was, uh, first of all, it it was very cold. And I was wearing tennis shoes. And I visited the various buildings and saw the furnaces. And I saw the room of eyeglasses and the room of hair and the room of suitcases. Totally, I know, because I was there. I totally know. I I can visualize it so clearly because I was there. And so I was there for several hours, and my feet got colder and colder. And then finally, it was time to leave. And the last thing that I did was I watched this film. And it was in a small room, and the film was about one boy. 
young boy, and he was made to stand out in the snow oh, barefoot oh, because wow. he gave another person a piece of bread to eat. And during that film, I was the room was kind of warm, and I could feel my feet begin to tingle as they were warming up. And I will never, ever forget that experience. And the thought of playing music for a film in Auschwitz is something I could not do. I simply did not want to do it. I didn't think that Kronos could... What, what could we possibly play? What could we possibly look like? For me, it was impossible. We turned it down. <laughs> didn't do it. And there have been other instances like that. I trust you more when you say this, because, you know, there are certain ways where the no comes in our mind, from the deep part of our body or mind. I think that no is telling us something, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we can change our mind later. Sometimes we do. And the way that you talked about distinguishing um, feet, the way you remember certain details, as busy as you are, but you still take time and you're not shortcutting the experience, this gives me that weight and trust that I have to your music. This gives me the trust when you explain the music in a concert. This really brings me to your curation, selection. So when I go to your music concert, I'm not just listening five music you choose. I'm kind of listening to my friend who takes time to remember that occasion and share. And I have had a equally impressive, or not impressive, not like I was out of the words. And we can talk about it next time. But it just gives me the sense of I'm so glad I have asked you to do this, do this with me. And uh, we, we can just continue. I, I want to tell you, Aiko, that you know you talked about the bow at the end of a piece in a concert. Yeah, I remember that those performances in San Francisco that we did with you and Coma. Yeah, and I would look over at the two of you, and the idea for sculpting the sound at the end of a note has come from you and Coma, actually. Wow. A lot of my current ideas about how to end a note and continue on with the rest of life has come from, from you. This is beautiful. So, uh, you know, we learn from each other. That's great. We learn all kinds of things. You know, sometimes people, I just have to end this with a little funny story. I know I let you go. So some people with a very kind mind said, oh, you know, you missed like perfect endings twice. You know, so meaning we created somewhat fake ending, which it's not good. And I totally get that. But when I was told, part of me said, thank you very much. But the other part of me said, I didn't come to all the way to America just to end perfectly. So there was something not to create a perfect ending, you know, but like, like go on, even though it might create something of the confusion, because I hope that we bring something beyond just a perfect ending. But when you <laughs> said that, where it's coming from, perfect ending has the lingering, lingering image. So it doesn't end and, oh, bravo, oh, let's go home, have a glass of wine. That lingering image is extremely beautiful and important that I live for. Echo, it's always, you know, it feels to me like our conversation, you know, whenever we stop our conversation, then the next time we pick it up, no matter how long it's been, it's almost like right where we stopped before. Yeah. <laughs> just pick it right up. Fuse is produced by Libby Flores, associate publisher at BOM. 
It is edited and engineered by Will Smith, with production assistance by Josh Dasa. I'm Chantal McStay, associate editor at Bomb Magazine. Our theme music is Black Origami by Jalen. This project is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. Subscribe to Fuse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.